Good morning. Yeah, here we go. We do serve a great God that is worthy to be praised. Let's take some time and uh, pray to this great God and ask that he would warm our hearts as we prepare to hear from his word. So if you would, pray with me. Father, it's um, so easy for us just to go about our routine on a daily basis and um, just to assume that things are well, Father, to wake up, to brush our teeth, to get dressed, and to, um, even to come into this time where we prepare to worship you, Father, with thoughts only about what we're going to get and what we're going to receive and not thoughts about how you desire to use us here in this place, Father. It's so easy for us to drift. It's so easy for our hearts to grow cold. And so now as we get ready to read your word, Father, I pray that that wouldn't be, be the case. As we hear from your word, Father, would you warm our hearts? Would you prepare us to hear about the great things that your son has done for us? And not just the great things that you've done for us, but the great things that you've called us to so that those that don't know you can see and experience and feel, Lord, the joy of what it means to be one of your children. So as we read your word, Father, as we hear it preached, I pray that the walls would be broken down, that we would be reminded, Father, that though you cut, you only cut so that you may heal. So give us great consolation as we hear your word today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, um, my name's John. I'm one of the pastors here at this church, and so I'm so glad to be here with all of y'all. And um, as it's uh, only our ninth week here, I do think that it's important that as we start in um, to let y'all peer into uh, a little bit of my life so that y'all get to know me better as we start. And one of the best ways that I know how to do this is to talk about marriage, uh, particularly my failings and shortcomings as it comes to marriage. This fall will be eight years for my wife and I. And yeah. Right? And I remember in our first year of marriage, we were at home one time. And so as we sit down, um, I'm watching TV, um, and all of a sudden, my wife says, Hey, John, um, there's a big pile of dust on the floor, and I can't sweep it up because I, I, I think I'm going to sneeze. And so I looked over, and I saw, and I'm like, there is, in fact, a big pile of dust on the floor. You're, that was true. And so I start to watch TV. Well, my wife gets mad and upset, and all I can think in my head was, I didn't do anything. Why is she mad and upset? And um, then a few weeks later, what takes place is she looks over at the trash, and, and, and she says, John, the trash is full. So I turn, and I look at the trash, and I think that is a true statement. The trash is, in fact... Full. I can't fit any more trash in there. If I do, it'll spill over. And so I go back to watch a ching TV, and she gets mad and upset. And at this point, I'm confused because all I can think of is, I didn't do anything to you. Why are you mad? I haven't done the, the things that I know make you mad. Why are you mad? What did I do? Later, I find out that that was her way of asking me to sweep up the floor and to 
take out the trash, that there was certain things that she expected of me, and I didn't know that she expected them of me. All I could think of was, if I'm not doing the things that she told me not to do, then she should be okay with me. If I am not doing the things that make her mad, then she should be pleased that I don't do those things. Granted, that was the way that I viewed marriage, and it didn't really work out well for me because asking your wife, are you mad, is not the same thing as are you pleased. Though we may not know what that feels like in marriage, I wonder how you think of your relationship with God. What does God want from you? As I ask that question, no doubt there's probably a bunch of thoughts that start to come into our mind. I think that we default, however, to when we think about what God wants from us, we default to things that we should avoid. I shouldn't cuss as much as I do. I shouldn't watch porn as much as I do. I shouldn't be as mad as I am. I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't. I've got to get these things un un under control. And we kind of fall into this trap of thinking that relationship with God, a successful relationship with God, falls or is primarily defined by the things that we avoid or don't do. So we spend our lives trying to avoid, trying to stay away. There's no real point. We just wake up each day trying not to do the things that we did wrong the day before. It reminds me of this game that we used to have on our phones way back when called Snake. You remember that game, right? Where there's no real point in the game. There's nothing that you're trying to do. You're just trying not to hit walls. And the longer that you can go without trying to hit those walls, the more successful you are. And it seems like that's a clear picture of how so many of us think of Christianity. That I spend my life just trying to not sin. And the more that I can not sin, the more that God will be pleased with me. However, we don't really go anywhere. Or you may be in here and you may have felt like you've really gotten a handle on all of the big sins. That your life is not so much about avoidance, now that you've got those big sins shelved, your life is spent asking this question as the precursor to what you do with the rest of your life. You're faced with a choice and you may ask, is it right or is it wrong? And then after you ask that and you come to the conclusion that something is not wrong, then you go and you do what it is that you want to do. And so it can take place very subtly is that we can go easily from enjoying our life to living for enjoyment. And what that means is this. We're not particularly concerned about asking the question, what does God want from me? Because we think as long as I don't do the things that he said that I shouldn't do, then I'm free to live my life however I want to. We live these lives where we drift and we pursue all of these great things. But when it comes to Christianity and a walk with God and a closeness with God, 
even though we feel like we're staying away from the things that are bad and wrong, it doesn't feel like we're getting any closer to Jesus. And so the question that I want to ask and answer for us all is this. What does God want from you? What does God want from you? And what does God want for you? And for that, we turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. For the course of the past nine weeks, we've been in this book. And this book is split up into two halves. The very first half, chapters 1 through 3, Paul tells us what is it that God has done for us. That all of us were lost in our sin. All of us were broken. All of us had hearts that were inclined to pursue and anything else but God. And as a result of that, we've earned death. As a result of that, we've earned hell. As a result of the lives that we lived, we felt the emptiness that came from a life that was pursuing and, and, and anything else but Christ. But God in his grace and his love and his mercy, he saved us in spite of our past. He knew all of our shortcomings and he chose us. Christ came down not just to take care of our past sins, but the present guilt that we had. Christ came and he wiped all of that out. And then what he's done is in light of the fact that you and I are such inconsistent people, what he did was he gave us his spirit to seal us. So now we don't have to fear that our inconsistencies are going to mess up what Christ has done for us. Christ has ensured that as sure as he chose us and as sure as he's saved us, that he's going to seal us to ensure that we, those of us that put our faith in Christ, are going to make it to the finish line. And he did that without you and I doing a single thing. The only thing that we brought to the table was our sins. That's what Christ has done for us. Thank you. That's what Christ has done for us. But if we're not careful, what can take place is we can take all of what Christ has done for us and put it in our back pocket and feel like I'm safe. Now I'm free to live how I want to. But what Paul does is he wants us to see, wait, 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 wait. Christ did all of this for us, but now there's something that he wants from us. Salvation is not a gift that's given solely so that you can now be free and not have this guilt and shame and live your life how you want to. It's a gift that's been given in order to transform us so that now we do the things that Christ has called us to do. What does God want from us? Ephesians 5, we're going to go from 1 to 20, but in verses 1 and 2, Paul answers this very early on, and he says this, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. God's pleasure here in verse 1 and 2, Paul outlines, look, 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 this is what pleases God. And the very first thing that he draws us to is to look at God's son. This is what pleases God. When you and I think of what Jesus did here on earth, 
that pleased God, we stop way short. We think Jesus pleased God because he lived a perfect life. He abstained. He was sinless. And all of that is true, but this stops way short of what Paul's saying pleased God. Do you know what Paul says was a fragrant offering and aroma to God? Not just the fact that Jesus was sinless, but the fact that he walked in love and he was sacrificial. The fact that he gave himself up. It's not just about what he doesn't do, but it's what he does do. Holiness is not just about abstaining and avoiding. It's about putting the goodness of God on display so that people are attracted to him. That's what Christ did. That's what God is pleased with. And so this is going to serve as the umbrella for us to look at the rest of this text as far as what it is that God wants from us. And it's this, that a life that pleases God is much more than just the absence of bad deeds. A life that pleases God has the presence of good deeds. Holiness is not just when bad deeds are erased. Holiness is when those bad deeds are replaced, transformed. That's what Paul wants us to see here. And so he's going to give us these three charges. So to please God and to be holy, it's much more than just abstaining from bad things. But I do want you to know it's not less than a Staining from bad things. The very first thing that he calls us to is this, to stay away from the darkness. To stay away from the darkness. Verse 3 says this, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with him. The very first thing that he calls us to is to be mindful of the way that we live. And his first charge is this for the Christian, for those of us that would consider ourselves God's people. It's this stay away from darkness. Stay away from sin. Historically, or if you grew up like I did, your thought could be, if I'm really going to do this, then I have to distance myself from the world. I've got to burn all of my CDs. I've got to make sure that I, I'm not in places where all of this stuff takes place. And so what can take place is when we think about being distanced from sin, when we think about staying away from the darkness, the very first thing that comes into our mind is removal. But what the Bible's going to tell us is that in this world, there's no way to get away from it. You know as well as I do, it bombards us on TV, radio, friendships, family. Everywhere we go, there's something that falls right here in this list. That if we're going to be successful in removing all of these things from us, then when, what Paul says is that we would have to leave the world. 
Here, as he talks about the Christian staying away from darkness, he's not talking about distance, but distinction. Right? These words here. But among you. This isn't how God's people get down. He's primarily concerned with how this takes place in the church. God's people aren't to be involved in all of these things. There's a, there's a distinction that takes place. In verse 3, what he does is he calls out our actions. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. The funny thing is about this list and all three of these things that he said is in the day and age that we live in, all of these things can be done in the comfort of your room behind closed doors. All of these things are things that can be done imperceptible to anybody else from the outside that looks in. All of these things are things, uh, struggles that can be had internally. Then he goes on in, in verse 4 and he says this, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Here, he gives an ethic of what life should look like here in God's church. The first thing he calls out, actions. And you and I are used to condemning the actions that are here in this list. But what we're not used to is condemning or seeing the danger in these words, obscenity, coarse joking. Our very first thought is this, well, what is coarse joking? What is obscene? How far does that line go? That's really based on who you're around. And Paul's main point in, in all of this is that God's people need to stay away from these things because these things are not innocent. They're not small. They're very dangerous. C.S. Lewis has this book called The Screwtape Letters. And in this book, it's a story of an uncle demon that's trying to teach his nephew how to trip and entrap Christians. And this is what he says about these words and about this concept of humor. He goes on and says this, humor is the all-excusing grace of life. Being a coward is shameful. However, if you're a coward, but you boast of it with funny exaggerations and grotesque gestures, it can be passed off as funny. Being cruel is shameful, unless the cruel man can present it as a practical joke. A thousand crude or blasphemous jokes do not help towards a man's damnation so much as his discovery that almost anything he wants to do can be done not only without disapproval but with the admiration of his buddies if only he can get it treated as a joke. And this temptation can almost be entirely hidden from the man by that one word called humor. And anyone else that suggests 
that there might be too much of it can be represented as puritanical or holier than thou or a killjoy. So as Paul talks about all of these things, he's saying among God's people, there has to be a distance because although these things seem small, they're powerful. Although these things seem small, they're really big deals. So you take a small thing like greed, and, and at the end of here, and um, uh, at the end of uh, verse 5, what he says, or the greedy person, which is an idolater. So he takes greed and he uh, compares it to idolatry or serving another God. And so here's what this looks like. The person that's greedy, they live their life governed completely by doing things that'll get them more of what they hope for. They live their life here on this earth thinking that the things on this earth will bring them joy. So what they do is they wake up each morning and their agenda is set by not what God wants from me, but what does greed want for me? Do you know what greed wants for you? It wants you to have a bigger house, nicer things. It wants you to have all the attention and admiration from everybody. So it'll steer you in a way where you view all of life through the lens of how can I get more admiration for myself? And it trickles down to everything that we do in life. What do or what I don't post on Twitter or Instagram is its aim to get people to praise me. What do I spend my money on? Why do I go to work? And here's the most subtle one. Why do I pray? Why do I ask God for things? The danger of the prosperity gospel is this, is that it uses God to fuel our greed. It appeals to greed. And it tells people that they can have all of what they want if they'll just appease God and do what he wants them to. And in trying to serve God, they don't serve the God of the Bible. They serve a false God. Something as small as greed, Paul's saying, this is is idolatry. And if God's people are comfortable with jokes and light talking and conversation that drifts away from God only to the things that we want, we're never going to be distinct in the world. So his first charge is this, stay away from this darkness. Anybody that has this darkness, even a hint of it, if this is the thing that's dictating our lives, he's saying anybody that lives their life in a direction, pursuing something that is not God, what, what, uh, what he says here is they have no inheritance in God's kingdom. Because at the end of the day, it's the exact same thing that Satan himself did using his life, his talent, his creativity, his 
ingenuity to convince people that God's not the one worthy to be worshipped or admired or applauded. I am. It's dangerous, so dangerous that Paul's main concern to a group of folks like us who would say, where's the line? Paul says, I don't want to explain where the line is. I want to redirect you. I don't just want to get rid of the bad deeds. I want to replace them with good ones. No caution, <laughs> joking, no obscenity, no greed. But he goes on and says, but instead, thanksgiving. Instead of using our words to draw people to us instead of using our words to please us. For the Christian, our life is in pursuit of trying to use our words to get people to think of and to praise this great God. Holiness is not about evil deeds being erased, but it's about them being replaced. It's so serious and dangerous that Paul says in the life of a church, there shouldn't even be a hint of it. The most poisonous snake in the world is uh, a snake called the inland taipan. And what they say is this. Its bite can yield 100 milligrams of poison, which is one three hundredth of one ounce. But that much poison, it says, can kill a hundred people. That small amount of poison can kill 250,000 mice. Though it's small, it packs a big punch. And Paul's charge for us as a church is stay away from this. Any hint of it, the smallest hint of greed can destroy an entire church. We've seen it take place. The smallest hint of immorality can blossom and destroy marriages and families. We've seen it all take place. Stay away from it. Avoid it. And so what that means for us is that as a church, when somebody thinks that they see a hint or they catch a whiff of this and they bring you off to the side and they share with you as a brother or a sister that's concerned, your first response shouldn't be to take offense to it. It's a group of folks that love you dearly. It's a group of folks that know what a hint of all of this stuff can do. And therefore, it's not just um, something that we do. It's our duty and obligation as the family of God to ensure that not a hint of this remains. And our aim is that in this Church. It's not about us creating distance from the world. It's about us creating a distinction from the world. Why? Paul goes on and he gives us our next point. As sure as we're to stay away from darkness, we're not to retreat. We're not to escape. We're to stay away from it only so that we can shed light on the darkness. Verse 8, Paul says this, For you were once darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. 
It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and the light of Christ will shine on you. What he says is this. When we look in the Bible, every admonition that we get towards action, it comes as a result of God reminding us of who we are. So God does not say, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. It's not just rules, but he's saying, as a result of the relationship that I have with you, do this. Our actions are informed by who we are. We see this transition take place when we get married or when we have kids, right? Your wife will say things to you like, you can't just dot, 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 you're married now. You can't just dot, 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 stay out all night, spend money on yourself. Why? Because you're a dad. There's a responsibility that you have. Your new identity means that now you have new actions, new duties, new things that you have to do. So what Paul says is this, for all of us that would read that first part, stay away from darkness and feel as if, man, now I'm going to be that dude that's not involved in the conversations that I used to have that were fun and lighthearted and they really didn't do any bad. Man, now I'm going to miss out. Paul's saying, wait a minute. You have to remember, past tense, you were darkness and now you are light. God saved us. God rescued us from that. We're sitting here in this room not be, because we're frustrated that God pulled us out. We sit here, those of us that are Christians, and we remember how empty that life was. We remember how unfulfilling that it was at the end of it. We remember the weight and the guilt that we felt when we did the things that we wanted to do and felt the consequences of it. And Paul says, now, those of y'all that have been saved, you are children of light. And then he calls us to live out of our identity, live out of who we are. And one thing that light does is it does this. It exposes the deceptive dangers of the dark. For any of y'all that have kids, that have toys, small race cars, and things like that, when you wake up in the morning, you don't dare walk down the stairs with the lights off because you know that if the lights are off, it's going to hide all of the dangers that are on the floor. But the first thing that you do is you flip on the light so that you can avoid the dangers. And this is what God calls those of us to do that are Christians, that we sit and our job and our duty is to expose the deceptive dangers of the dark. Verse 11 says this, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, right? Don't do bad, but rather expose them, 13, but all that is exposed by the light becomes visible. Our job as Christians, as we live here in this world, as we're a church, as we're this distinct com community, is to shed light on the darkness in such a way that we kind of serve as this 
divine yelp for the rest of the world. So those that would look and say, man, I really want to be involved in this type of relationship. I really want to be involved with this greed, with all of these things that I hope to get. I really want to be involved in XYZ, that we as a church would be able to, as a community, say, wait a minute, come in here and you'll see folks who did all of that, whose lives fell apart and who God saved us. We're those that present a review on the darkness that exists in the world so that people aren't fooled, so that folks don't think that there's something to be had that is really not there. We are those that exist here in the world to shed light on the fact that even those that have been consumed by this darkness at one point in time can be changed and they can be received with open arms and thanksgiving and love. Practically, here's the way that exposing darkness works in a church and it works out in a church. Exposure, it shows us the ugliness of sin. But what it also does is it shows us the beauty of Christ and the fact that he can transform that. Here's how that, that plays out in the life of a church. There's a brother here that's a part of our church, um, and as I read this text, I thought of him, and I asked if I could share this story, so that's why I'm getting ready to share this. So don't feel as if um, I just kind of come out here and share all of y'all stuff uh, just for a good sermon illustration. And what goes on is this, is um, about a year ago, he was a part of our church, or he still is a part of our church, and he lived in a house with three other guys. Well, he got into financial trouble and hardship, lots of debt because he mismanaged his money. So what took place was all of the bills were in his name. So his roommates would pay him money and he was supposed to pay these bills. In the course of five months, he stole $2,000 from his roommates. And all the while, his mindset was, I just made a bad choice. I just did wrong. I'm going to work and I'm going to get things together. And once I do, I'll pay him back. I didn't steal. This is like a, a loan, right? And so what took place was five months in, their lights get cut off. And as a result of their lights get cut off, they come and approach him and they say, hey, we called and found out we're five months past due. We know that we gave you money for these past five months. What took place? And it's ironic that it took the lights getting cut off in his house for the light to come on and expose the sin that was in his life. And it was exposed, and it was ugly, and it was a mess, and his roommates were frustrated and mad, and he had to deal with the weight of letting folks down, stealing from them, lying. He had to deal with the weight of these people may never want to be around me again. And what took place was he was encouraged not just to confess his sin to them, but to confess his sin to the community as a whole. And he thought that it would be embarrassing, but 
from his own words, it was the most encouraging and therapeutic thing that took place. Do you know why? Because when he confessed this sin, when he confessed this gross sin and shed light on the things that he did wrong, he wasn't met with condemnation. He was met with forgiveness. Now his roommates, who said they believed in God, who said their identity was, I'm a child of light that's been saved by God freely, not based on things that I did, but when I was at my worst, God forgave me, and now I'm set on this earth to do the same thing. Now what they did, they had a tangible opportunity to extend that same grace that God gave them, and they did. And what took place with this guy, right, who said, I know what it means to receive the forgiveness that comes from God in a theoretical sense. Now we tangibly felt it from people. And his confidence was increased in the fact that God actually changes people and changes lives and their disposition. And then what took place is that a community of folks that were part of the same church that saw that now they had an opportunity to freely give of themselves. And they gave and they helped them so that they didn't get evicted or put out of their apartment and all of that. And so it's this crazy thing because you see this, this sin that's at play. You see this darkness that's there. But then what you see is the light of Christ that shines on it exposes it and turns it and transforms it into something that just went wrong into an opportunity for the goodness of God to be put on display. And now what we have is a church. We have a picture in this church that distinguishes us from what life looks like in the world. In the world, there's not forgiveness like that. In the world, there's not love and acceptance like that. But in the church, in Christ, what takes place is that the worst of sinners, so long as they live in the light and repent of their sin, can have the acceptance and the love and the grace that they hope for. And the beauty of that one act of darkness that God shed his light on is that it serves as a constant reminder for all of us that regardless of where you are, regardless of what you've done, you may sit in your seat right now and feel like there's no way that I could share what's going on inside of me. There's nothing good that can come from it. The Bible affirms otherwise. There is. This blessing and this freedom that comes when we live in the light. There's blessing and freedom that comes when we as a church see that our duty is not just to stay away from the darkness, but it's to expose the deceptive dangers of the dark and to walk in love like Christ says, to, to meet those things head on with the same forgiveness that we've seen in Christ, to show a world that there's nothing that can be done to separate us from the love of Christ. But that only comes as we shed our light on the things that um, need to be seen and transformed. Verse 14 says this. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, 
rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's a summary from Isaiah 61, and the point of this quote that he brings us in at the end is it's saying, you know, as sure as Christ has raised us from the dead, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and the light of Christ will shine on you, that the light of Christ will illuminate or bring out the beauty of what he does to dead hearts. It's as if Christ raised somebody from the dead, brought them out of their casket and shined the light on them so that the rest of the world could see somebody that they thought was dead, but now that Christ brought them to life so that all of us who feel like we're dead and we're distant and we're far from God can come to that same God and receive that same love and mercy. Which leads us to our last point. What it is that what is it that God wants from us? God wants us to stay away from the darkness so that we are reminded that as sure as God has saved us, he's called us to be distinct in the world, to paint a picture of him that would cause folks to want him more. We shine light on the darkness, not to embarrass folks, but to encourage those that would hide those that would drown in the shame of their own sin to tell them, you know, in Christ, there's no reason for you to be ashamed. There's love, there's forgiveness. And whenever we repent, whenever we turn from our sin and embrace God, it's met with the blessing of forgiveness. Which leads us to our last point, and it's this. In light of all of that, what does God want from us here in this world? I believe that God wants us to step carefully through the darkness. We don't drift through life, but we're mindful that the world that we live in is on a downward slope. The world that we live in is angled downward away from God. There is a subtle yet strong stream that seeks to take us away from God. And so what takes place is as we live here in this world, we're mindful. Every step that we take, we do so in intentionally. Verse 15, it says this, be very careful then how you live, right? So there is no, I've worked hard, I've worked hard, I've worked hard, and now I've got this thing down pat, so now I can just coast through life. But for the Christian, at all times, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Listen, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Seek and make music, or sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're called to be very careful about the way that we live because our lives are precious. God purchased our lives for a reason. And one thing I know about all of us is that the things that we care of, uh, about, we're careful to maintain those things, right? Uh, we were at a birthday party a few weeks ago for a kid, um, and it was at this splash pad, and it had just rained, so the grass was wet. This one guy... Uh, drove 
to the party, when he saw that the grass was wet and he saw the, the shoes that he had on, cared so much about his shoes that he made the 20-minute drive home to change his shoes and then came back to that same party. He was so cautious about his shoes that he was careful not to get them dirty. He took great care and concern in the way that, that uh, the, 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 the a way that he walked on the grass. And this is what Paul's saying, take that same care and concern with the very life that Jesus Christ has purchased to display his glory. Don't drift through life. Don't waste time. Be very cautious, very careful. There's something that God wants to do with all of our lives, with all of our time that's only going to take place as we are careful and mindful of each step that we take. 16 says it's making the most of time because the days are evil. The word picture that's used there is buying back the time. So it says, time's going to go on, and the world will use that time for evil. As Christians, we know what the darkness holds. We know how people are going to be swept away and convinced by the deceptiveness of the dark. So it's our duty not just to abstain from bad things, but to use all of our time for good, to make the most of every opportunity. Not to let a single moment go by because a moment could be the difference between heaven and hell for somebody. The clearest picture that I saw this in the life of somebody that I knew and loved was my brother. I had a brother who passed three months ago. And one thing that I saw him, 32 years old, is he used every ounce of his time. He read this text and he believed it. So this was a guy that played D1 ball, got done with college in three years, went on staff at that school, served as a professor at that school, played ball overseas, invested his life into tons of men, started mint industries, served as a pastor, served as a teacher and as a coach. And all of these things that he did, he did them. And his goal was, how do I leverage these things to change lives? Up until the day that he passed, he stayed up late the night before with his wife, got up early at 6.30 a.m. to meet a couple that was getting ready to get married at a Starbucks that was not a part of his church and spent an hour and a half with them sharing about God's word from his text. And then goes into his car, pulls out his Bible to read and to prepare for what he's going to preach to his church the next week. And falls asleep and in an instant he dies. And what I saw was somebody that with all of his life believed this scripture. He didn't waste an ounce of time. He wasn't somebody that gave himself very much to leisure. But man, Sam always had a plan or a scheme or something of how he was going to use time to bring people into the kingdom. 
And he learned it from Christ. You go through the gospel of Mark, which is what we're going to preach to as a church this week. Go back home, read the first two chapters of that book. And in the ESV, what, what, uh, what you're going to see is that nine times in the first two chapters, it uses the word immediately. And it paints this picture of this guy who has such a sense of urgency that he's not drifting through life. He's not just trying not to do bad things, but Jesus is spending his life going from person to person to person, to thing to thing, to event to event, sharing all of the great things that God has done in order that he would bring somebody back into God's kingdom. I wonder what our thoughts of our free time. I wonder what your thoughts were of what were your plans for this afternoon? What are you going to do when church is done? How are you going to use that time? How did you plan for this morning? Did you wake up and just plan to come to church and to sit and to hear and then to go home and to go about the rest of your day? Or were you so convinced that the world that we live in is not a good place? There's dangers that exist in the darkness that look to sweep away the rest of the world as well as us. And the fact that Christ has saved us, he saved us not just to set us up on a shelf, but he saved us to project his greatness onto the world so that people would see something of what he's like and be drawn to him. And he wants to use us and every ounce of our time. I wonder if you think about your time like that. And so it ends with just more of Paul saying, don't do this, but do this. Don't just be concerned about erasing these bad deeds. Replace them with good ones. And as we walk through this life, we step very carefully. It's so funny how when he talks about being filled with the Spirit, this active engagement and being filled and controlled by God, do you know what he contrasts it with? Being drunk. Now, he's not saying that it's a sin to drink. The Bible does not say that it's a sin to drink. But what Paul's concern is, is this. If we as Christians have been called to walk carefully through this world, what drunkenness does is it leads to carelessness. It leads to all of the, the best and are, are all of the things that make a, a man his best and his brightest. Drunkenness tends to suppress those things. And what Paul's saying is, as we walk through this life, though we know the danger that exists here, that our aim is to do this, to be actively filled with God's Spirit. And so that we don't leave, and that phrase is just some ethereal mystical thing, he spells it out, and I just want to close our time with trying to spell that out as well. Being filled with the Spirit, this is what it looks like. Verse 19 and 20. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the heart. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Being filled with the Spirit 
has its aim in relationship with both people and with God. And so the first thing he says is, you know, speak these psalms, these hymns, these spiritual songs to one uh, another. All that that is, is the person that's filled with God's spirit and steps carefully through this life, spends his time looking for ways to encourage somebody else to remember the great things about God in the midst of all of the frustrating things that go on in the world that we live in. The beauty of this is, is that as we come to corporate worship week in and week out, you have an opportunity to do this. That when you come, it's not like you just don't come here to sit. Those of us that are filled with God's spirit come to engage with folks who have had weeks that tear us down, that break us down, who are struggling in marriage, who have been just owned by sin this week that we know that we shouldn't have, who have been just so frustrated and hurt by the way that life hasn't panned out like we thought that it would. And if we really are a community of folks that are filled with God's spirit, then as folks come into the, those doors with those things, there's a group of folks there to speak these things, to remind them of the great things that God has done for us, to remind them of the Psalms who oftentimes start on a very, very low note, but, but, but by the end of the Psalms, they end on this high note. Though the world seems like it's crumbling around me, God is still on his throne. And it reminds us that even in the most frustrating of times, that we can sing and make music from our hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of what Christ has done, regardless of what this world looks like regardless of what our weeks have felt like. We have a chance to encourage one another and to remind them of the great things that God has done. What has God called us to do? God's called us to step carefully in this dark world that we live in, to take advantage of every opportunity that we have to proclaim his goodness and to live in such a way where people see and interact with us and see something of his nature and are drawn to him. My prayer is that we wouldn't drift through life, that we wouldn't live for enjoyment, but we would live for the one who snatched us out of darkness and brought us into his glorious light. Let's pray. Uh, Father, um, again, we are thankful for the fact that um, you've called us to much more than just drifting through life, Father. We're thankful that you've called us to much more than just staying out of harm's way. You've called us to participate in your work, to take advantage of every opportunity to do so, Father. You've called us to be the bearers of good news, and I pray that we would see that as a privilege and as a joy, Father. Be with us as we go. Fill us with your spirit, Father. Help us to presently and actively engage with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.